Has there ever been a time in your life where looking back, you realize you wished you would have changed something sooner or quicker? Uh, a little while ago, my kids found this picture of me and it was a picture of when I was a teenager and I think I had just bought my very first car, the 1978 red Volkswagen Rabbit. And for some reason, uh, I had come home and and my mom, I think, wanted to take a picture of me with my new car, and, and that's kind of normal. But for some reason, I decided that I should get up on the hood of my car and like sprawl on it like a model. I looked incredibly awkward in this picture, but what made it even worse was I was wearing some short shorts. Now, I don't know why, because the style of that day would have been longer shorts, uh, but for some reason, I had, held, I had held on to these shorts for a lot longer than I should have. I know fashion changes, and I'm sure that there are pictures of you that as you look back, you go, man, I wish I wouldn't have worn that. I wish I would have changed it out quicker. And uh, that's, it's just, it's funny how those fashion mistakes uh, just can look, you know, years later. But it does reveal a truth. It reveals a truth in us that we are resistant to change. We like to hold on to things oftentimes, and it's really hard to change for us. I mean, some of you maybe had the inability to change when you had a health scare and the doctor said, hey, you should change your diet and you didn't really want to. Others have a hard time leaving a toxic workplace even though they know they should, or an abusive relationship. Even though we know the change is good for us, it can still be hard for us to do that. Others of you know that God want you to, wants you to take a step of faith or do something and you're resisting it because it means change, uncomfortableness, or risk, or even a little bit of fear. Even those people who seem to thrive on change, when you sit down and talk to them for a while, you'll discover that there are areas in their life where they are resistant to change, even the early adapters. And you know what? It shouldn't surprise us that part of our issue with change is actually biological. There's that part of the brain, the amygdala, that just when we are faced with change, it tells our brain and our body that change is a threat. And so it releases hormones in our body to fight or flight or fear. And so what it does is it actually tells our body to fight against the change that is coming. And when you uh, think about change in a personal way, in a spiritual way, you realize that not only is our body fighting against the potential change, our sinful self often fights against spiritual change in our life. And it shouldn't surprise us that resiliency and change go hand in hand. You can't really have resiliency without some sort of change. And you can't get past or conquer the change without some form of resiliency. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but resiliency really is a prerequisite for the gospel. Because the gospel is the biggest change that you will ever make in your life. We're at the end of our series of The Resilient Church. And today I want to spend some time looking at an individual who was resilient. And I want to look at some of the things that caused him to be resilient. So if you have your Bibles, open them up at 
Acts chapter 6, and we're going to be Acts chapter 6 and a bit of chapter 7. And I want to look at this guy named Stephen. We don't know a lot about Stephen. He just shows up on the scene in the early church in chapter 6. But there are a few things we do know about him. And in the first part of chapter 6, it tells us these things. That he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was also full of wisdom. He was full of faith. He was full of God's grace and he was full of power. In fact, by verse 8, it tells us that he was performing wonders and signs in the early church, just like the other apostles. And then you get to verse 9 of chapter 6. And it says this, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, which they mean the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So apparently these guys couldn't out-argue Stephen. Stephen had them beat. Anytime they had a theological debate, anytime they were talking about the scriptures, Stephen seemed to be able to just, you know, overcome their logic, overcome their thinking. And it appears that they were getting frustrated by this. And so if you can't beat them, you know, through arguments or theology, you beat them by stabbing them in the back. So they produce some false witnesses. They haul them. They seize them, it says. They grab him forcefully and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body of the Jewish people. And so they, they, and they charge him with blasphemy. They charge him with the things, uh, they say he says things about the temple and about Moses' law, two things that the Jews held very dear. And yet, I don't know if you noticed it, but when I first read this, one thing stood out for me, and it's that last sentence of chapter six, where it says he, he had the face of an angel. You ever wondered what that, what that means? I mean, we use that phrase a little bit, right? Sometimes when we see a cute kid, we just say, oh, they look like an angel, right? And yet, generally, they're like two or three years old. By the time they're seven or eight, they're not the face of an angel anymore. Because when we say that, we kind of mean they have this face of innocence, of cuteness. And yet, that's not what I think Luke is telling us here about Stephen. The impression I get in my understanding of when Luke says that about Stephen is that Luke or these people saw Stephen and his face was probably glowing because you, you see in other references in scripture, when it talks about angels, they are talked about having a, a, the glory of God around them, a brightness, a shining. And there's this parallel that jumps out to you as you begin to read chapter 7, that the way Stephen appears is the same way Moses appeared after Moses' interaction with God and getting the Ten Commandments. It, said, it says in the Old Testament that his face shone. It shone so much, he actually had to put a veil over it because people couldn't look at him. And that's kind of the image I get. Stephen is before them. He's got this countenance that people are noticing. 
And potentially, if they're paying attention, it will remind them of Moses in the Old Testament. Now, most of chapter 7 is Stephen's response to the charge of blasphemy. And if you read the whole thing, you'll realize that Stephen is kind of sharing the story of their people with the leaders, the Sanhedrin. And some people have questioned why he would do that, because these people know their history. He doesn't need to repeat it. But if you look at it closely, you will realize that that Stephen is very purposeful in what he shares and why he shares it. Remember, he has been charged with blaspheming the temple. And for the Jews, the temple was such a significant place. It was the place they came to meet with God, to be before God, because they believed God resided in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. It was the place they brought their sacrifices for God. It was the place that they lived out their law, in essence, before God. It was so important for them. And as we've looked at earlier in previous series in Daniel, the first message there, the the temple identity was so strong for the Jewish people that when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, it entirely, it affected their entire culture, their entire uh, way of how they viewed themselves. So the temple is so important to them. And, And he's setting up his response. And if we had time to read it, I'll just point out some of the things that he says. Verse 2, he talks about Abraham. And in verse 2, he says, Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia, lived and lived in Haran. And he talks about God talking to Abraham at that point. And then a little bit later in verse 10, he goes, jumps down to Joseph and talks about how God met Joseph in Egypt and helped Joseph become the second most important person in Egypt. And then you jump down to Moses in uh, verses 29 and 30. And it talks about how Moses, uh, after he left Egypt, went out into the desert of Midian and an angel of the Lord met him at Mount Sinai. And why does he include all these references? He includes these references because he's trying to show these people that even though the temple is important for them, God isn't restricted to the temple. God, in fact, met Abraham and Joseph and Moses, not in Jerusalem, but in other parts of the world, and he spoke to them. And so he's trying to help them understand that they had put God in a box and that God doesn't operate that way. And then he finishes off by coming to the uh, near the end of chapter seven in verse 48. And he's talking about the words from Isaiah. And he says this, however, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? And what he's reminding us here is that God does not need a temple. In fact, God is everywhere. And he's just pointing out to them that they need to expand their understanding of who God is and how God actually operates. You see, God does not need a temple to communicate with his people. God is so much bigger than the temple. And as impressive as the temple was in Jesus' day and Stephen's day, it was actually getting in the way of the Jewish people coming to the place where they would accept the new covenant that Jesus had put in place with his death and resurrection. And I think it's a small reminder to us that if we think we can only meet God in a specific way or in a specific location, we're wrong. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's this. 
We don't need our building in order to meet with God every week. We don't need to come to the building on Sunday mornings in order for God to speak to us. You don't have to be in your seat in the north section of the auditorium to meet with God on Sundays. You can actually do it from your couch, from your lazy boy watching the service. God can speak to you there. We don't need a building. Because I think sometimes we fall into the same trap that the Pharisees did, the leaders of the day. We put so much emphasis and importance on our building that we forget that God can turn around and do anything he wants. He doesn't need the building for us to be the church. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans was part of God's purpose. You see, part of it is uh, they no longer had to offer sacrifice. That was taken care of with Jesus' death. And so God did away with even their ability to do that. But I think it's even bigger than that. I think that as long as the temple was in existence, the Jews would never come to a place to accept Jesus as their Messiah. God had to do a change for them. God was doing something new and they couldn't accept it. The second part, the second charge that Stephen is charged with is blaspheming the law. And the law was important. And the law was given by God to Moses to give to the people. And really the purpose of the law was, was to show the people what the requirement was for them to be righteous. They needed to do everything in the law in order to be considered righteous. But as you find out in the New Testament, as Jesus comes on the scene, he reminds them that there is, there is no way we can live up to the law. And in fact, the law, really what it does for us, it shows us how, how much we can't be righteous before God. That we actually need Jesus' death and his resurrection. We need Jesus to give us that righteousness. No one can attain righteousness on their own. And so the problem was that the Jews had turned God's laws into this long list of do's and mostly don'ts. They were so proud of their tradition, but they disobeyed the law, God's law. And Moses comes, uh, or uh, Stephen tells them this in verse 39 to 42. And he reminds them that even as Moses was up on the mountain, getting the, receiving the Ten Commandments, the people were down below. And this is what he says in verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him, meaning God. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought out sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them. Stephen reminds them that even in the process of receiving the law, the Israelites turned their back on God. And as you look through the Old Testament, that does not change. Time and time again, the Israelites walk away from the law. They disobey it. They turn their back on God. They were so proud of their tradition, but they so easily disobeyed God. And whenever God wanted to correct his people, he would send prophets. And Stephen goes on to share that even when he sent his prophets, the people would kill them. They wouldn't listen to them. And they themselves had killed the final 
the Messiah himself. They had done exactly what their ancestors had done. They had killed the person that God had sent them. And then you get to verse 51. And this is where Stephen just lays it all out. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, or Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. There's this, there's a number of descriptors there, and, and stiff-necked is an interesting word. And, and you know what? A number of years ago, I heard someone pronounce it a different way. Instead of two syllables, they pronounce it with three syllables, stiff-necked. And it, it has always stuck in my head. And every time I read that word in the Bible, that's how it is pronounced in my head. And I'm sorry if I've stuck that with you. But there's this picture that they, they will not bend their head or submit themselves to God. That's kind of the picture that he's painting here. Their hearts and their ears were uncircumcised, meaning that even though they were physically circumcised, the spiritual circumcision that God wanted for them in their hearts and their ears to listen and to obey, they did not do. You have the law and you don't obey it, he goes on to say. How will you ever accept the gift of the gospel if you're stiff-necked and you resist the Holy Spirit? You see, Stephen puts his finger on one of the key things we need to understand in terms of resilience. Resilience requires us to be open to change. And the Jewish leaders were closed to any change. They weren't even willing to consider that God might be doing something new. Sometimes we get so locked in on the how, how we should do things, we forget the why. There are things that churches do that are very similar to what the Jewish leaders of the day were doing. Sometimes people, we're doing things as churches and people don't even know why we're doing them. When I was growing up, uh, when I went to church as a kid, we had to go to church in the morning and then church in the evening. There was two services, one in the morning, one in the evening. And I never understood why we had to go to church in the evening. Like, what was the purpose? Like, did God have a certain amount of songs that had to be sung to him on a Sunday and we just couldn't fit them all in on a Sunday morning? So we had to have the overflow service in the evening to get our quota in? Like, that's what I was thinking. And then you realize that the purpose of Sunday night had changed. I don't know if you know this, but one of the reasons why churches started meeting on Sunday nights was actually because of evangelism. You see, when the light bulb was invented and electricity was just starting out, a church had this bright idea of buying a light bulb and installing it and then turning it on. And it was such a new thing that people from all over the town would come to look at this light bulb. It was an attraction. They had never seen anything like it before. And so this church used that opportunity to start preaching the gospel. It was an outreach method that over time that got lost and it just became another service. Sunday school was the same way. I don't know if you know this, but Sunday school for kids got started because people wanted to reach out to vulnerable children and give them an education and teach them the gospel at the same time. 
And so they would call these kids in who had no ability to go to school and come and they would teach them and teach them how to read and how to write and they would use the Bible as their curriculum, sharing the gospel with them. Now you think about Sunday school these days. Most churches do Sunday school or some form of it, but it's really about teaching the the church kids about the things of God. The whole idea of evangelism, the whole idea of outward is lost. The why has been lost. And it's no surprise that when you try and change or take away Sunday evening services from some churches or Sunday school, there's this huge fight. And the fight happens because we've lost the why and we hang on to the how. Oftentimes we become proud of our traditions or the way we operate, not thinking about why we do certain things. Our methods often come to the place where it trumps the mission And if that's the case, we're in trouble. We get so focused on the how, it actually blinds us to the possibilities that God has something for us. Resiliency requires an openness to change, but it also, resiliency also allows us to see the opportunities in the crisis. You see, in this this account of Stephen, You have Stephen just sharing his faith in the synagogues, arguing, trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And it leads into this crisis that happens where he's brought basically into an informal court hearing. And in that moment, he takes that and he sees that as an opportunity. He sees it as an opportunity to share his faith, to teach and share with the, the Jewish leaders who Jesus is and what really is the purpose of the temple and the law. And he gets into it and he starts sharing them and he gets to this point where he calls them out. And I don't know about you, but if you've read this whole chapter, you'll realize that he never actually gets the chance to share the gospel. They react in such a way that they take him out and stone him. And it starts in verse 54. It says this, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yell, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragging him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had done this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. And so you see this opportunity that Stephen takes takes advantage of. He sees the opportunity even in the midst of crisis and even though it costs him his life. But there's other aspects of this story. There are some other opportunities that we begin to see that actually have nothing to do with Stephen and his testimony. Notice this is the first time we run into a fellow named Saul who would then be converted later on and become Paul. This is a pivotal moment in his life. This is something that God uses in Saul's life to lead him ultimately to accepting Jesus as his Savior. And then if you were to continue reading on in in chapter 8, you will find that this death of Stephen initiates a persecution of the church. And the church is forced to scatter throughout, outside of Jerusalem, into Samaria and beyond. And as they scatter, it tells us in verse 4, chapter 8, that they go preaching. 
And this is a reminder to us that back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had told them that they would leave Jerusalem eventually, that they would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you see, Stephen's martyrdom actually initiates that. And so this crisis of his death actually is an opportunity for the gospel to spread. Sometimes the opportunities that are apparent or are available are not apparent to us. I think God sees some of the opportunities and we don't see them. And this is a question that I've been asking myself. What if COVID, what if in COVID, God is just shaking up the church? And one of the reasons we're going through this is that God wants to shake up the church to be more open to him, to be more outward, to be less focused on ourselves and our rights. And what if he's actually preparing us for something that's coming that might even be harder than what we've experienced? That's not a fun thing to think about, is it? But what if that is what God is doing through COVID? You see, I think one of the things that we need to become is, is really gospel resilient. We need to be at a place where we know and understand why we believe what we believe. Because if you don't know why, you will hold and fight for tradition. But if you know why you believe, you'll be able to move into those areas and challenge the status quo. You will be excited about change. You will look for things to change. You will be open to, to what God is working on and what God is doing. There's this great quote I read this week by Doug Paul that says, As Christians, we are now known more for being people who refuse to change than for people who are bringing the change. Tonight, in our partners meeting, we're going to be talking about new vision for our church. And one of the things I'm excited about is that we are talking about as part of our vision, this whole idea of intentionally taking risks, which means we need to be open to change. We need to see where God is working, where God wants us to go. We have to fight against being comfortable. We have to be willing to step into things. We need to be resilient. It's something our church needs. The last thing that I see that Stephen teaches us about resilience is that resilience requires uh, congruence. Congruence simply means that everything works together, meaning that your daily actions, your short-term goals line up and align with your larger vision and purpose for life. It tells us that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, when it says full of the Holy Spirit, what it means is, is that he was controlled by the Spirit. We use similar language, like we, when we say he was full of anger, we mean that that person was controlled by his anger and that's why he did what he did. Stephen's life was in congruence. That's why he was able to be resilient. He, he did exactly what God wanted him to do. His whole mission was to please Jesus. In many ways, Stephen models what Paul will later write about in Philippians 1 verse 21, when Paul writes this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, the willingness for Stephen to die was just an extension of his purpose in life. If he could share Jesus with anyone, he'd be willing to die for it, just like any of the other apostles were and did. This congruence, he knew the most important thing in his life was Jesus, was following Jesus. And I think one of the reasons that we may struggle with resilience is that 
we may not have congruence in our life. If you have different priorities, and if you base the importance of those priorities on how you're feeling in the given moment, I can bet that your life is not in congruence. And for some of you who claim to follow Jesus, but when we actually look at the decisions you make that are not in alignment with that, then I would say, hey, your life is not in congruence. In fact, you're incongruent in your life. And so let me ask you this. How is the resilience of your spiritual life today? Are you being stiff-necked? Are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Are you closed or opposed to change? What opportunities or crisis in the crisis that you're facing right now that does God want you to step into and you're saying no to? Is your life, the actions you do, are they incongruent with what you say you believe? If that's the case, then I can bet that your spiritual life is not very resilient. And maybe today, it's just a reminder to get back to the simple things. The simple things of following Jesus, making him Lord of your life, and being willing to go where he leads you, be willing to accept change, be willing and open and see opportunity in crisis, and make sure that your life is lined up with what you say you believe. Let me pray. Dear Holy Father, we just thank you for this reminder that it is so important that we are resilient in our faith, resilient in our life. And Stephen does such a good job of reminding us what a resilient life can look like. Lord, that when we put you first and we're willing to be open to how you're leading us, that you will lead us into incredible places even if they are difficult. So God, I pray for those who are listening, who are maybe resisting the Holy Spirit right now. Maybe they're stiff-necked. Maybe they are not obeying you right now. I pray that your spirit will convict them and that they will be resilient and be open to the change that you want them to experience. Lord, that they would confess their sin, that they would uh, do the things that you're asking them and calling them into. God, may we be a church that no matter how difficult things get, that we will be resilient, that our lives will have congruency, that what we say we believe, we actually live out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Um, And I pray that God has just spoken to you this morning, whether in the worship part of singing together, whether the worship part of listening and opening his word. I ask that you just consider answering the questions at the end of the service. Jump into them. Really answer them from your heart. See what God might be trying to pull out and discuss with others what God might have for you. Have a great week, Southridge, and we'll talk to you next Sunday.